This season is made possible by our generous sponsors, the Vagina Collective, the National Vulvodynia Association, ONUT, and Discover Her Health. The Vagina Collective funds people and organizations changing how society talks about vulvovaginal pain. The National Vulvodynia Association is a patient advocacy nonprofit committed to funding research that will lead to more effective treatments for vulvodynia. Discover Her Health offers healthcare, education, and resources that allow patients to overcome the most intimate concerns, from painful intercourse to embarrassing leaks. And ONUT, for when sex feels too deep. ONUT is the partner-approved, doctor-recommended solution for more comfortable sex. Jasmine has a lot going on. She's a doctoral student, she's an equity and inclusion professional at a liberal arts college, and on the side, she's a doula. She's working to address health disparities within the Black community. Jasmine's also in love. She tied the knot with her husband, Jordan, in 2017. I love that people walk up to me and be like, oh my God, Jordan is so great. And I'm like, I know I married him, duh. Like, <laughs> like this is mine. Don't be too excited, right? <laughs> Jasmine and Jordan live in central Iowa. And in their community, a lot of people see them as a model Black couple. Loving, happy, fun, successful. I'm working on stuff for doulas in the state. He does a lot of equity inclusion things for institutions. So we we are seen as this power couple for a lot of people. And they've said those things to us. The Black couple thing is also a rarity here in Iowa. A lot of people have interracial relationships. So when we came to the scene, it was like, what? Like Black people in love and it's not an issue? But there's one thing about their relationship that a lot of people don't know. I've been with my husband for eight years and we have not had penetrative sex. And that's something Jasmine used to feel like she had to hide. But not anymore. Now, she and Jordan are ready to talk about it. This is Tight-Lipped, a public conversation about a private type of pain. I'm Noah. On this show, we talk about vulvovaginal and pelvic pain. We share stories about painful sex and shame, and the politics surrounding these conditions that we often keep secret. We uncover why it's so hard to get diagnosed and treated, and what we can do to change that reality. Our podcast is part of a grassroots advocacy organization, fighting for patients with these conditions to get the care they need and deserve. Most people just assume that married, heterosexual couples are having sex. And by sex, they mean penis and vagina sex. But for so many women, transgender, and non-binary folks with chronic pelvic or vulvar pain, having that type of sex is either painful or impossible. Jasmine is one of those people. Today, we'll hear from Jasmine and Jordan about how they're redefining what marriage and sex looks like for them. A quick heads up. On this episode, we briefly mention both sexual abuse and suicide. So please listen with care. Let's go back way before Jasmine met Jordan. 
She was only 16, but there were already signs that something was going on with her body. She had this hip pain, which she thought was related to her scoliosis. And her periods were really painful, too. So for the first time, she went to a gynecologist. The doctor took out a plastic speculum. So she tries to put it in, and it just felt like a wall. And I just felt her trying to push, and I just, like, kicked her. Kicked her right in the chest. Jasmine's mom was there, too. And all I can hear was them laughing. You know, they were, you know, oh, she's going to have an interesting time having sex. She's going to need a lot of alcohol on her wedding night. After that, Jasmine didn't go back to the gynecologist for years. And all through college, she didn't even try to have penetrative sex. Still, she knew something wasn't right. Tampons were too uncomfortable, so she only used pads. She still had that hip pain, and she also had trouble holding her urine. I could just be walking, laughing, bending over, stretching, and I'd just pee on myself. I never knew what it meant to not carry another set of underwear and pants somewhere around me. She had no idea what was wrong, so she just tried to deal with it on her own. Fast forward a few years, and Jasmine was finishing up her master's degree. She was at her job, talking about how bad the dating scene was. Her friend said, I have someone you should meet. She showed me a picture of Jordan. It was him and his two other frat brothers. And all I could think of is, oh, he looks happy. Like, that's all I thought about. It wasn't even anything because he was smiling so big. And I'm like, oh, he looks like a happy Black man. When I talked to Jasmine and Jordan, the first question I asked was, so how did you guys meet? And then they both talked nonstop for like 30 minutes. It was obvious how happy it made them to talk about the beginning of their relationship. So here's the short version. After that mutual friend planted the seeds, they met for real at a conference for professionals working in higher education. Jasmine was networking right and left, but when it came to approaching Jordan, it was a different story. I was like, Jasmine, it's not even that deep. Like, just go introduce yourself. So then we go to get pizza and I'm like, so what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Because I'm just, I was that person back then. She just, just grilled me, right? Grilled him, yeah. She gave him her business card and they started chatting over Facebook Messenger. And then those talks became I like, like phone calls and things and stuff. And, like, oh, I kind and of like date nights with right. Netflix. When Jasmine got the job she'd been interviewing for, Jordan sent her an edible arrangement, which turned out to be a really good move. Because I looked at my dog, bless his heart. I looked at Cisco and I was like, if Jordan got me an edible arrangement, he's going to be your new daddy. <laughs> Jasmine fell in love with Jordan's family too. His family is amazing. First of all. In so many ways. My dad has <laughs> never truly paid any attention to anybody that I dated. And he meets her in the first 10 minutes. I barely got in the door. And it's like... <laughs> Why are you acting like you've known her all your life? And, and he I'm just like, reminds me of my dad. So it was like, a, it just clicked for like within seconds. But at the time, both Jasmine and Jordan were prioritizing their careers. So we were long distance for a majority of our relationship. Right, right. You moved to Idaho. I was living in Georgia. Then you yeah. moved to Pittsburgh. Yeah, I was moving a lot. They were almost never in the same place. So... I fell in love with his mind first because we couldn't really be physical with each other. I feel Jordan is very brilliant. 
and he understood my overthinking and so we just it just felt right jasmine felt like she could really open up to jordan she felt comfortable with him but when they tried to have sex it didn't work any kind of penetration was painful they were long distance so much of the time that it felt like something they could deal with and they both thought maybe the sex thing was a temporary problem so when we got married somehow we thought him him mostly that something would change like can you imagine signing a document and be like your vagina's released to you now right like <laughs> i was thinking that that would be a thing cuz i'm like it has to be something maybe we're just not meant to have sex before we get married maybe god's punishing us right like don't sin <laughs> you know so i'm like you know hopefully we cross this this broom we get back home and things will be different and it wasn't they tried everything they could think of i've tried the alcohol i've tried cbd i've tried drugs i've tried positions i we tried everything under the sun but nothing worked and that was really hard emotionally for both of them jasmine felt like there was something wrong with her like here was this fundamental thing that she couldn't do like to really think about how you can be so in tune with someone and then can't be with them right like it just it broke me in so many different ways for a while jasmine was in a really dark place i have vivid memories of contemplating suicide when we we're still struggling. And she's far from alone in that. It's so common for people with pain like Jasmine's to struggle with anxiety, depression, and even suicidal thoughts. It can be really hard. And it made Jasmine question everything. Like, should she and Jordan even stay together? Something she and Jordan have talked about more recently is if they hadn't been long distance for all those years if they'd been physically together and not able to have sex would they still have gotten married and the answer would be no i even tell him if i knew i had vaginismus before i met him i wouldn't have been dating anybody like i i actively would make that decision of not being with people if i knew When I heard Jasmine say this, I knew so many other people with vaginal pain who could relate. But why did Jasmine and so many others feel like this? Why did she think if I can't have penetrative sex, then maybe I should just be alone forever? So many heterosexual women with conditions like Jasmine's feel like there's something fundamentally wrong with them. Where does that feeling come from? When you think about it it is very weird. This is Professor Amy Kaler. Like of all the things that people do there's this one act that you know that is the heterosexual act and if you're not doing that then are you really heterosexual or sexually active or or whatever you you want to call it. Professor Kaler teaches in the sociology department at the University of Alberta. Back in 2006, she published a paper called Unreal Women: Sex, Gender, Identity, and the Lived Experience of Vulvar Pain. 
and she talked to me about all the cultural, religious, and even legal narratives that position penetrative sex as so important. And the distress that women with vulvar pain and, and vulvodynia feel is, you know, is an outcome of that because there is so much weight placed on, on this thing. Pop culture is filled with movies and TV shows and romance novels that conflate having sex with a woman's gender and sexual identity. There's always this moment where the, the heroine, you know, has sex for the first time with the love interest. And there's all this stuff about um, suddenly knowing what it meant to be a woman or, or becoming a woman or she wakes up the next morning and she thinks now I'm truly a woman and so forth. Today, many of us realize how ridiculous this idea is that your gender identity as a woman forms from having penetrative sex. But what about women who only have sex with other women or who just don't want to have sex? Or what about trans women or folks who are non-binary? So much work has been done to get us to think about gender and how we have sex in far more expansive and inclusive ways. But at the level of sort of stereotype and ideas that are, are still getting promulgated, you know, decade after decade, there still is this, this conflation between being a real woman, being heterosexually active, and engaging in this, this physical mechanical act. We also inherit legal traditions where, you know, if a man had sex with a woman, then he had certain rights over her. That was how you determined whether a marriage was a real marriage or not. It had to be consummated. The legal history Professor Kaler is referring to is both fascinating and horrifying. As recently as the 1950s and 60s, American courts were declaring that a marriage without regular penetrative sex was an invalid marriage and possible grounds for divorce or annulment. In fact, according to a series of legal rulings, in order to meet the legal definition of wife, a woman had to have the ability to be frequently and fully penetrated. That's right, legally, you had to be vaginally penetrated on a regular basis. And the whole frequent and full part really mattered. For example, in a 1951 annulment case called Donati versus Church, the judge wrote, Although her husband was able to, and did frequently, insert the tip of his penis, this imperfect intercourse is not enough to rebut a finding of the defendant's impotence. If intercourse was painful and therefore infrequent, that could also be grounds for annulment. In a 1955 case, another judge said, Sexual intercourse, which is so painful, and difficult to a wife, that it is discontinued by the parties, is not the normal and wholesome marital relation which is envisioned by the entry into marriage. Now, you might be assuming that all of this ultimately had to do with the woman's ability to get pregnant. But in a case from 1968, the male plaintiff was able to have his marriage annulled because of his wife's vaginismus even though she'd gotten pregnant earlier that same year. It was a splash pregnancy, meaning that it happened without penetration. So clearly, procreation wasn't the only issue here. 
What was an issue was the ability to have a very particular type of sex. When we spoke to Jasmine and Jordan, we told them a bit about this legal history and asked what they thought. That's pretty trash, right? Like, that's very trash. And, uh, and it's like, how many men are not able to keep an erection? I mean, all the statistics that are out about not even pleasuring women and stuff in heterosexual relationships, like, is that then going to be able to be used in the court case? Jasmine and Jordan don't subscribe to a lot of these old-fashioned ideas about marriage. If anything, having chronic pain has broadened Jasmine's understanding of her own gender, gender expression, and sexual identity. Still, that doesn't mean those historic ideas have no impact on them. When it comes to how we see ourselves, we're all influenced by the culture we live in and the messages society sends us. There's an academic article titled, If Sex Hurts, Am I Still a Woman? by psychologists Katherine Ayling and Jane M. Usher. It's published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. The authors interviewed women with vulvodynia, and they found that participants often saw themselves as inadequate, as partners, and as women, because that's the message they were getting from dominant cultural narratives. The same article also points out that treatment for vulvar pain is often hyper-focused on fixing women, so they can just have penetrative sex. And for a while, Jasmine was really focused on trying anything that might fix her, too. Hoping that this is, this is the appointment, this is the, this is the thing that they're going to do to me today that's going to fix it. In counseling, she was told that maybe her problems with penetration were psychological because she'd experienced sexual abuse and assault as a child. So for a while, she and Jordan both thought, okay, if Jasmine keeps going to therapy, if she can work through all of her trauma, then maybe it'll get better. I think I was thinking a lot around like, you know, maybe the security of being like, we're committed, this is our forever, we're forever, our partners with each other, right? Um, that, that type of thing would be able to help or something like that, right? While being in a secure and loving relationship with Jordan and going to counseling definitely helped Jasmine emotionally, on the physical side of things, she was still experiencing extreme pain if they tried penetration. And besides that, penetration was not the only problem. She still had all those other symptoms too. Hip pain, urinary issues, painful periods, Eventually, Jasmine saw a doctor who told her she has a condition called vaginismus. She did, I don't know what the assessment is called, but they were they feeling around, kind of gauging your tenseness and gauging your pelvic floor. And she's like, yep, you have vaginismus. There's debate in the medical world about whether vaginismus as a diagnosis is outdated and if it should still be used. The term vaginismus technically means spasming of the vagina. It was actually coined by none other than James Marion Sims in the 1860s. Sims described it as a complete barrier to intercourse. It was all about inadequate wives preventing male penetration. He enthusiastically recommended surgery as the cure, even when his colleagues disagreed. It's a descriptor diagnosis, meaning a term that describes the problem but doesn't explain the actual cause. And maybe most importantly, it has a psychological association and historically was viewed as a psychosomatic condition, 
You may remember the story from our last episode all about the DSM. Still, for Jasmine and Jordan, getting any medical diagnosis was a huge relief. At least it was called something, right? So, but even then I was like, okay, well, if it's a physical thing, cool. Then does this mean stretches, working out, things and stuff of that nature, right? So I was thinking I, I was also having come from the space of like, this is something that can be changed or shifted or fixed. Jasmine started going to physical therapy, but that cost money that she didn't really have. She had to drive 40 minutes each way to get there. And while physical therapy did help with her urinary issues, it didn't seem to change anything else. She tried dilators, but... They irritate my pelvic floor. So when I use them, I should expect not to be able to walk. So we're talking about taking days off that I don't have. We're talking about um, feeling so much physical pain that I can't do my job at work. Jasmine felt like she couldn't keep doing this. She was worn down and exhausted. She felt like this stuff was taking over her entire life. It's just like, I'm tired of going in places and feeling like I gotta be fixed all the time. Like physical therapy, my gyno, right? Acupuncture, yoga. Jordan saw how much she was suffering. And he also felt like maybe this isn't worth it. The harm that you would feel, Jasmine, and the, the, the again, the poking, prodding, and all those things are not worth it to me. Jasmine and Jordan realized maybe they didn't need to keep trying to force her body to do something it didn't want to do. And she and Jordan started thinking about her symptoms and condition in a new way. I was like, oh, it's not about being fixed. It's a matter of like, this is what it is, right? And then how do we navigate and live through that? How do we love through that? They started exploring what types of intimacy actually felt good for both of them. So if our intimacy doesn't involve um, penetrative sex, can our intimacy be other things, right? Um, What does it mean to enjoy each other's touch and sensations in other capacities, right? As opposed to just penetrative sex. What does sex mean? Uh, what does intimacy mean? I feel like our language has changed. We we talk about being more intimate than we talk about sex. I don't know if you agree or disagree with that, but we, I'm like holding hands, touching each other. We're not always mindful and great about it because we're so tired, but but there are moments where we're like, come sit, come sit next to me. Like, let me hold your hand. They've reached a point where it's less about what the outside world is telling them they should be doing and more about what works for the two of them. And that's put Jasmine and Jordan in a much healthier place. But now they're embarking on a new chapter. They're trying to have a baby. And that's brought its own set of challenges. For Jasmine and Jordan, trying to conceive is just one more thing they can't do the conventional way. Now, like trying to become a mother... I'm like, yeah, this is different too. The ways in which we have to approach this is different. And in her work as a doula, Jasmine gets reminded of that constantly. At first, Jordan wondered, how was that going to affect her? When I became a doula, he was like, how do you feel about witnessing something that you may not ever experience? I think sometimes I get really upset. I get upset with people who can just have children and then they say, what are you waiting for? 
right? Um, And I just let myself feel it. I let myself cry. They've tried IUI, a fertility treatment where a doctor uses a catheter to insert sperm directly into the uterus. But that hasn't worked. And when IUI doesn't work, the next step is typically IVF. But Jasmine and Jordan know that IVF is a grueling, expensive, and invasive process. I told him, like, I, I truly don't know if we can't have a child through IUI that I even want to go through IVF. And that, it breaks my heart because I'm like, that means I give up, right? Like, that means that I give up because at the end of the day, I'm like, I know what IVF means. And that's just another thing of like someone coming in, trying to fix me to be able to have a child. And I'm like, I don't think I'm emotionally ready for that. Jasmine knows that whatever she decides, Jordan will support her 100%. But sometimes, another part of her feels guilty. Like, maybe Jordan deserves to be with someone who can give him kids. I weaponize it towards myself of, like, don't do that to him. Um, I know he won't leave me, uh, but it always is in the back of my mind. I'm like, can you... Is it still too late for you to be able to have kids with another person? And he just looks at me and he's like, I'm not going to do that. Um, do I want children? Yeah, of course. I would love to have children. I think since like five years old, like I've thought about this, right? I had, I've had my daughter, my firstborn daughter's name since I was seven, right? Like, <laughs> and so like, of course, I think. We have the, all of our children's names. Actually, yeah. If, if we since are, we've if, been dating. If we are able to have four children, we have all four of their names and their reasons mm-hmm. and purposes and things, right? But at the same time, we will not love children at the expense of Jasmine's mental, physical, and spiritual well-being, right? And that's not, yeah, that's just not, uh, that's not something I'm willing to sacrifice or risk or anything of that nature. I asked Jasmine, how does hearing him say that make you feel? So to be able to hear him say that, not just in this moment, but often, just lets me breathe a lot better. Like, I feel like I can breathe, and then I'm like, okay, let's, let's go right back at it. There's this stubbornly persistent idea out there that a family equals a man and a woman who get married, have a certain kind of sex, and boom, babies. In some ways, we've moved so far beyond that. But at the same time, charting a different path can still feel difficult and kind of radical. For Jasmine and Jordan and so many other couples, not fitting into that narrative means that they've had to really think about what marriage and family means for them. So like, first thing to say is Black love in general is resistance. So whether that's platonic attraction or romantic, just the fact of us being together is a form of resistance. They're imagining what their marriage could look like without biological kids. Our union is not only about birthing, right? Um, our union is about who we are and what that us coming together. Um, We're very powerful choo- together. Choo- choosing to walk this life with each other, right, is mm-hmm. about, right? And, if a part of that narrative, a part of that story is children that we birth, children that we adopt, children that we just mentor and are connected to in our communities. There are so many possibilities. 
And now, Jasmine and Jordan have also made a conscious choice to try to share their story. So, like, I think that's radical, right? A lot of times what happens is that, again, those things are kind of kept in the families, kept quiet. But there is something amazing to just being vocal about it, to being open about these different things. Like, I'm not saying that you just got to always put your whole life and everything on blast in every avenue, right? But in those moments where you're like, no, this is okay to share, right? I think that's important, right? That our, our narratives, our stories are super important. If you're out in the world and you don't feel like there's examples of the stuff that you're kind of going through, it makes it hard to figure out how you can imagine that future, imagine that possibility. And so my hope is that, uh, that we see ourselves in that same imaginative and creative space and that other people are able to do so as well too. Remember when Jasmine said that if they hadn't been long distance at the beginning, if she'd known that she had vaginismus, she wouldn't have pursued a relationship with Jordan? I've come so far since that conversation. I hate the thought that that would be something I miss out on, is to be with him. I hate the thought that I would have chosen to not experience love because of what vaginismus meant. And still means. I love where we're at. I'm grateful for what where we've, you know, arrived at as a couple. Of course, I want us to continue to grow, but I'm like, yeah. I'm I'm really happy with you. I'm really happy for who I am. I wouldn't trade any of the things that we went through because I think that has brought us here. Could we have? still got here without those things absolutely but yeah. i think i think after every storm right that moment of clearness yeah. where like the light comes out the ground is still wet but it's still beautiful it smells it it feels beautiful it feels like possibility right it feels like possibility so one of my favorite songs is a stevie wonder song called as and like in some of the different lyrics he says like I'll love you until the day that night is night and night becomes the day, mm -hmm. right? Or until eight times eight times eight times eight is four. Mm -hmm. Till dolphins fly and birds live at sea, stuff like that. And I'm just like, yeah, like that's where I'm at. All right, I'm with you. <laughs> Almost a year has passed since I first met with them. When I checked in recently, I learned they had their first IVF consultation. Jasmine's feeling more supported moving forward with IVF, especially since her doctor is validating and understanding of her pain. I'm so grateful to them for sharing their love story with us, for reminding us that a beautiful relationship doesn't have to look any one particular way, and that when we push back against the idea that there's only one way to be physically intimate or only one way to build a family, that's a good and freeing thing for everyone. On a final note, for those of you out there struggling with a condition like Jasmine's and feeling alone, she's got a message for you. If you are listening and you're like, I have vaginismus and I can't find love, like I hope for you to know that you can, that, that somebody could be out there, whether that's a romantic relationship or a friend, that someone is going to love you or some people that are going to love you the way that you deserve. Always. Always.
Thanks for listening. To join our community, sign up for our newsletter at tightlipped.org or find us on Instagram. Check out the episode page on our website to learn more about Jasmine's work and find articles referenced in this episode. You can also find Jasmine at Rural Black Doula on any social media platform. The legal and historical research in this episode came from Tight Lips' very own Hannah Schreier. Her paper, Imperfect Intercourse, Sexual Disability, Sexual Deviance, and the History of Vaginal Pain in the 20th Century United States, was published in the Journal of American History in March 2023. This episode was written by Olivia Good and edited by Ava Ahmed Beghi. It was executive produced by Hannah Barg with the help of Delilah Ryder, Sarah Rosa Davies, and Kalisha Toddy. We received additional support from Judah Kaufman and Sella Weisblum. This episode was fact-checked by Rachel Gross. Our episode art this season was designed by Sammy Ariel. The music is from Blue Dot Sessions. If you'd like to contribute to our work, you can make a donation on our website. We're building a grassroots movement by and for people with chronic vulvovaginal and pelvic pain, and we hope you'll join us.